With yet another COVID variant storming the globe, what's the future of tourism in Israel? What about the relationship between Jerusalem and Washington? And why does Israel seem to be losing the public relations war in the media? Coming up, we'll tackle some tough questions as we meet the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest. Welcome to Moody Radio's one-hour focus on the Middle East. We call it The Land and the Book. And our team features Israel expert Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger, excited to announce a kickoff to this new year, Charlie, with a book blast. Oh, that's exciting, John. I understand we're giving away three books this week, and I'm excited about that. So tell us about it. Well, we're giving away three titles, as you said, Israel on High Alert by Ron Rhodes. What can we expect next in the Middle East? Ron is a very gifted communicator. Then it's 40 Questions About Islam. Uh, This by Matthew Bennett. We had him on the program. Well-received. You'll love it. And then Joshua, a commentary. You know, Joshua is a character that we don't give enough attention to, and I have loved this commentary, Joshua. So it's part of the three-book book blast giveaway, 40 Questions About Islam, Israel on High Alert, and Joshua. Now, how do you win these three titles? It's easy. Ready for this? Send the link to our podcast to three friends. And once you've done that, send us your name and shipping address. That easy. Again, send the link to our Land in the Book podcast to three friends, and then send us your name and shipping address. And a random drawing will declare the winner. you got to enter by Sunday at midnight. All right, Charlie, let's dig into our look at current events for this week from the Middle East. Libya's election commission has postponed their national election for president just days before it was scheduled to take place. Why cancel the election, and now what happens? Yeah, they postponed it two days before the election. Well, officially, they said it was postponed because of inadequacies in electoral legislation and problems concerning the eligibility of candidates. The election board then suggested a new date. Let's go to January 24, but that date was met with resistance from several groups. So they're now suggesting the elections need to be postponed for maybe up to a year. They're still trying to decide. Now, while the official reason for this last-minute postponement was a lack of constitutional clarity, it appears the larger issue centers on concern over some of the candidates who are running. There are deep divisions within that country. The Electoral Commission was afraid that some of the candidates opposed by the current temporary government might actually have a reasonable chance to win. Eastern Libya, Egypt, France, and Russia support Khalifa Haftar while Western Libya, controlled by Islamists and supported by Turkey and Qatar, do not. Both sides disagree on the dynamics of the election process, including who ought to even be allowed to run as a candidate. Now, Each side's concerned about so-called foreign influence by countries supporting the other side, and indeed there are foreign countries supporting both sides. There is also concern over political interference from the different armed groups within the country. Now, the U.S. is pushing Libya to set a realistic date for the elections. But even as the U.N. and other world powers try to save Libya, renewed prospects for fighting just seem to be growing more likely as the different groups begin to mobilize their forces. For the moment, it looks like all sides are waiting to see what the roadmap to elections uh, that's now being developed will look like. Hmm. Uh, The key questions that they're going to have to answer, will the elections be held? Who will be eligible to run and what will be done to minimize outside interference and ensure a fair election? The roadmap will then be presented to Libya's parliament for adoption, but should the proposal appear to favor one faction over another, it's likely to be rejected by those who feel it's designed to deny them access to power. 
And they uh, and their international backers could then try once again to gain control through the use of bullets rather than ballots. And that kind of chaos would be welcomed by groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, who thrive best in times of political instability. Now, sadly, these tensions, John, could continue throughout much of the new year. Mm. Charlie, doesn't the very fact that this election has been delayed cast a doubt on the integrity of any election in the future? Oh, absolutely. In fact, when you delay it two days beforehand and then claim it's because you have a question on the electoral process, the thought in most people's minds is, why didn't you work out those details beforehand? Yeah. Well, Christians are under siege throughout most of the Middle East, but an encouraging report out of Israel suggests the Christian community there is growing. Charlie, what are the details behind this bit of good news? Yeah. In most of the Middle East, including the area controlled by the Palestinian Authority, Christians are indeed struggling. You know, their numbers in most Arab countries continue to dwindle as more Christians move away to avoid all the problems and the persecution. And that's what made this report so encouraging. The Arab Christians who are citizens in Israel are the one apparent exception in that whole region. Hmm. Now, this Christian community is still fairly small. There are about 182,000 Christians living in Israel. They make up just 2% of Israel's total population and about 7% of Israel's Arab population. But in a recent survey, 84% of those Christians said they were satisfied or very satisfied with life in Israel. Numbers released by Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics showed the Christian population in the country actually grew by 1.4% last year. But it's not just that growth in numbers that's making the Arab Christians feel so satisfied. According to the most recent statistics, 53% of Arab Christians went on to get a bachelor's degree after finishing high school. That percentage is actually higher than the percentage of Jewish high school graduates. And the proportion of Christian women in higher education exceeds that of other demographic groups, particularly among those studying for advanced degrees. Less Christians signed up for unemployment benefits compared to the Jewish and Muslim population, suggesting they have a more stable job environment. Now, this hard data runs counter to some of the statements being made by Christian leaders who've said that the presence of Christians in the Holy Land is threatened and precarious. Now, that might be true for Christians in Muslim-dominated areas, but the Arab Christians living in Israel have an opportunity to live a safe, prosperous, and happy life. And the numbers seem to indicate that's just what's happening. If you just joined us, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. He's got a number of trips on his calendar for 2022, Lord willing, COVID allowing. And we're doing a, a walkthrough of stories that you have maybe seen online or on television, stories from the Middle East. I like this one. An underwater excavation off the coast near Caesarea has uncovered two shipwrecks, not one. And among the remains of the one 1,700-year-old ship, archaeologists discovered what they've identified as a Christian ring. Tell us about this discovery, and how do they really know the ring belonged to a Christian? Yeah, they discovered these wrecks uh, near Caesarea. One dates to the Roman period. Uh, the second dates to the early Muslim period. Now, some of the more interesting finds are those believed to be personal effects of sailors or perhaps other passengers on board. And the one in particular was this gold ring inlaid with a green gemstone on which was carved a shepherd boy holding a ram or a sheep on his shoulders. It was that uh, image that uh, made the archaeologists suggest the ring might be a depiction of Jesus as the good shepherd. Now, 
without an inscription, obviously, this can't be known for certain. But if that's correct, it would suggest the ring's owner was an early Christian. A red gemstone was also found in these excavations, and archaeologists believe it might have originally been set in a ring as well. Uh, On the stone is carved the image of a harp or a lyre, uh, known in Jewish tradition as David's harp. Now, while this could be a Jewish symbol, the same symbol, known as Apollo's lyre, was also part of Greek mythology. And in this case, it seems more likely that the seafaring wearer of this ring would have been a Gentile rather than a Jewish sailor. Uh, These finds are a reminder that travel by sea was dangerous, and many ships were lost at sea. You think they'll find any additional items in this excavation, or have we kind of, you know, hit the mother load here? Oh, no, I think it's uh, just the beginning. In fact, what's so amazing in this area is uh, there are literally hundreds of shipwrecks. They just keep stumbling upon them, Mm. and as they sift through the sand, uh, they're they're excited because they have no idea what they're going to find. Kind of like going down at Christmas and seeing the presents and just knowing that there's something there, you're just waiting to unwrap it. Yeah, cool. Well, I'll look forward to future stories uh, on the program ahead. Well, finally, uh, an Israeli tech partnership hopes to save cows from global warming. What's the reality behind this uh, moving story, Charlie? Well, well, global warming and climate change are key items. You know, they're driving the agenda of governments and media and scientists. And one target for a number of climate activists happens to be cows. And here's why. Methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. Uh, It's 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And 30% of all methane gas worldwide is produced by our planet's one and a half billion cows, which puts cows on a hit list in the minds of many. And that's why I'm so thankful for the team of scientists at Ben-Gurion University who are partnering with two other groups in an effort to reduce the amount of methane emitted by cows. Through their studies, they've determined that the amount of methane produced is mainly related to the microbial environment in the cow's gut. They're working on a technology designed to boost the efficiency of the cow's digestive system. Uh, Once they've determined the ideal composition of bacteria in the gut, they plan to optimize the cow's feed with an additive that will help limit methane production. Uh, Their goal is to work with farmers to help make cows more environmentally friendly, which could then be a selling point for the meat and the milk produced by those cows. Now, since methane only stays in the environment for 10 years, Reducing the amount produced by cattle could have an almost immediate impact on the environment. And that's good news for those of us who like milk and cheese and steaks and hamburgers and everything else. Uh, Let's hope those cows keep producing. All right. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. A reminder, we are right now kicking off 2022 with a book blast. Charlie, what is it and what are we giving away? Uh, We're giving away three titles this week, and uh, I'm excited about the books that you've chosen, John. They are very helpful to an individual. Uh, Why don't you tell them again about them, because I I was excited when I listened for the first time. Well, for example, there's Israel on High Alert from Ron Rhodes. I mean, the Middle East has long been spiraling out of control, causing global uncertainty and fear. And we ask, what does this turmoil mean for Israel, and why has peace been so elusive? Well, Ron Rhodes uh, wastes no time getting right to a fascinating discussion that you'll enjoy. Plus, I like this one, 40 questions about Islam. Who was Muhammad and what was his message? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? What happens in the mosque? What does Islam teach about women? You'll discover answers to those and many other questions in this book. And finally, a a great new uh, commentary on Joshua. It's not merely a story of conquest. 
It's a treasure trove of theology we need to grasp. How do you enter to win these three books in our book blast? It's easy. Just email us your uh, your name and your shipping address and tell us that you have indeed sent the link to our podcast to three friends. That's the first thing you got to do. You got to share the link to our podcast with three friends and then email us your name and shipping address and do it by Sunday midnight. We'll do a random drawing, and somebody's going to win these three books in our current book blast. Well, a fascinating conversation ahead with the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest here on The Land and the Book. He's a career diplomat with 15 years of experience in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yanam Cohen is the Consul General of Israel to the Midwest. He's a career diplomat with 15 years of experience who has served in Spain, Colombia, Berlin, Germany, and now Chicago. Before arriving in Chicago, Yanam Cohen led the position of Senior Policy Advisor to Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi and Director of the Policy Department in the Minister's Bureau. Prior to that, Council General Cohen was the director of the U.N. Political Affairs Department, where he oversaw Israel's diplomatic campaigns in the U.N. Security Council and General Assembly in Israel. It is truly a pleasure to welcome him to the Land and the Book program today. We uh, thank you for honoring us today by coming to our studios. Thank you, John. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, many of our listeners are hoping to travel to Israel this year, finally. That said... What would you say is the 2022 forecast for tourism in Israel? Oh, we really hope it's going to be much more positive than the previous year, you <laughs> yeah. know. Uh, COVID made a huge change, but I'm very optimistic. Um, situation in Israel is becoming better and better. Uh, the country is opening, reopening again, foreign tourism. And I really invite everybody just to make the effort and go to Israel. It's really worth it. It seems to me, and you'd be the expert here, that now is particularly a good time to go because with folks recovering from COVID, maybe some of those sites are just a bit more accessible, some of those lines not quite as long. What are your thoughts? That's right. That's right. I mean, but, you know, the more tourists come, the more, I mean, the happier and, and the merrier sure. the country is. So, yeah. so we want to see a lot of tourists in Israel. Well, as we move further into the new year, a little bit more of a serious subject, what impact have the Abraham Accords had on Israel's economy, if any? Is it too early to tell? Right. So I think the Abraham Accords are probably the most significant development in the Middle East in recent years. You know, I was there with Minister Gabi Ashkenazi when the accords were signed in the White House, hmm. um, headed by then-President uh, Trump and uh, Israeli and Arab representatives. And that was a historic moment. You know, I personally had the chance to live some historic moments myself yeah. uh, because of the Abraham Accords. For example, I was very privileged to go to Berlin. We met there with the German minister and with the Emirati minister. You know, the Jewish people has long and, and, and tragic history with, with the German people. But yeah. there we went to the Holocaust Memorial together with, an, mm. uh, you know, with the Emirati minister, with an Arab minister. And that, that was a very strong recognition from the Arab side of the historic Jewish suffering. Yes. And I think that this is a basis for reconciliation. Now, you were asking about the economic effect. So yes. that is amazing. You know, we have tens of direct flights to Abu Dhabi, to Dubai, to, the, to Bahrain, to Morocco. Israel go all over. So tourism brings money and brings yes. prosperity. 
The Emiratis are so interested in Israeli innovation and water technologies, yes. uh, everything. So, I mean, peace brings prosperity, and I think this is the best thing that we could get out of it. With us today on The Land and the Book, in studio, Yanam Cohen, the Council General of Israel to the Midwest. What about the building of goodwill with these other nations? I mean, beyond the economics, that has to be good to see, as you've already pointed out, symbolically, yes, but also on a practical level as, as these nations come together. Oh, yeah. And this is a very exciting thing we experience now with our new peace uh, countries, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Bahrain. Um, you know, the great thing about it is that they actually, it's not just peace between governments. It's really peace between the peoples. You know, we see so much excitement on the other side to get to know the Israelis, to get to know Judaism. Uh, new synagogues are actually opening right now in the Arab Gulf countries. That's amazing. We have Emirati students with their traditional, you know, clothes in Israel, going to Israeli universities. So students get along together. This is really a people-to-people peace, and that's what makes it so great. All right, take us behind the scenes inside of Israel right now. We hear about so many amazing innovations from what we call Amazing Israel. Uh, You guys continue to make enormous contributions. How do you account for so much of this activity taking place in such a relatively small country? This is the question I always ask myself. I'm not sure I have the correct answer, but I do have some ideas. I think, first and foremost, it has to do with the Israeli concept of chutzpah. You know, it's really hard to translate, but chutzpah means to be very direct, to try, not to be afraid of, of failure. You know, this is how we educate our kids. Never be afraid to try. And if you fail, then you'll do better the next time. And this is, I think, the basis for all the inventions. Yeah. Well, speaking of those inventions, anything come to mind technology-wise that has you fired up, excited, maybe something you've read about or been informed about in your position? You know, um, being the Consul General of Israel in the Midwest brought me to learn new areas that I didn't know before. So... You know, the Midwest is the international hub for the car industries, both in Detroit and in Indiana. And we do not produce cars in Israel, but we do have a center of, an amazing center of many innovations in the automotive industry, um, autonomous cars. Um, You know, one of my professors in the Hebrew University, his name is Amnon Shashua. He started a company that ended up selling for $15 billion, Hmm. Uh, you know, just, you know, smart mobility. So this is very exciting. And I think this is something Israel really excels in. And it's really relevant to our commerce here at the Midwest. He's a career diplomat with 15 years of experience in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our guest today on The Land and the Book is Council General Yanam Cohen. Well, you know, that said, every nation has its share of challenges. What does Israel see as some of its most significant technology challenges for the near future? You know, we have always been a country with no natural resources. One of the only natural resources we had is the sun. And I think the most important technological challenge right now is making sure that we use what we have, the natural resources we have, to guarantee long-term stability. Um, so most of the efforts right now in Israel are invested in exploiting the sun to produce clean energy yes. that will replace coal and, you know, and, and gas and other fuels. So this is one of the major things we're focusing on right now. Another critical technology that Israel has pioneered is desalination plants. I'd like to know what's happening currently. I think about uh, a story we recently covered on the land in the book with regard to the Dead Sea shrinking year after year after year, largely because the Jordan River is being used for agriculture and other needs. 
And yet a desalination plant coming online in a year or two or three that could help some of that water uh, you know, be replenished ultimately. What's going on with, uh, with water technology in Israel? This, uh, this is correct. You know, we already have some desalinations uh, plants along the coast of Israel, along the Mediterranean, and more and more drinking water are produced from the sea in Israel. So exactly, this is exactly the trend that uh, we are hoping to see, to use less, you know, accessible sweet water, keep them as reserves and using the sea as a source of drinking water. But I would like to share another amazing fact with you, John. You know, actually almost 80% of the sewage water in Israel are recycled and is used uh, for agriculture. So we try to use every possible drop yeah. and keep our traditional water resources, just like the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, accessible for tourism and history and tradition and the uh, heritage that they bring with them. Well, a conversation was held on a large scale in the United States toward the end of 2021 about infrastructure. What about infrastructure ideas, challenges in Israel? What do we know? Oh, we have so many challenges in this respect. We're a small country. We're a tiny country. And we have a population that is growing every year. Uh, we believe in big families and kids. And, you know, Israelis love their kids and love their yeah, families. Sure. So we have big families. So the needs grow every year. So we really need to invest in more uh, uh, railways and uh, metro. But there are some other aspects to that because I, I'm from Jerusalem. And for example, in Jerusalem, because of the amazing history of the city of 3,000 years, we're actually unable to excavate um, towns for an underground station yeah. because of all the history. So we try to find other solutions. So, so that's a challenging thing. Okay, you, uh, you mentioned archaeological discoveries and exploration and, and all of the complications that that introduces into new construction. But our listeners love hearing about these new discoveries, uh, particularly those that connect with the Bible. What can you share along those lines? Oh, you know, every month brings new discoveries of history of more than 3,000 years. You know, Jerusalem is all about layers. There are so many layers that reflect all the history of the city, of the, uh, you know, different populations and different empires that control the city. But I think that for your listeners, the most exciting thing would be this, uh, to visit the city of David. Mm -hmm. This is exactly where you see the historic connection of the Jewish uh, people to its ancient capital, that is Jerusalem. You see all the evidences for the historic uh, Jewish kingdoms that uh, prospered uh, 2,000 and 3,000 years ago, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon. This is something really amazing, and you can actually see the evidence for these kingdoms. This is very unique. I want to turn the uh, conversation down a bit of a road here that's not quite as pleasant, and that would be the public relations war. It, it seems like so much of the time in the media, at least here in the United States, and I'm sure it's also true in Europe, Israel doesn't win that war. It seems like the story is told through a very uh, colored filter that Israel is somehow the aggressor, Israel the occupier, Israel the this, the that— and we somehow fail to report things like 1,500 rockets are fired by Hamas into Israel in one month alone. We fail to report on all these other aspects. How is it possible that uh, you guys are just not winning that public relations war? Thank you, John, for this question. This is, you know, this is actually a tragedy because for me, there's a definite good and bad in this story. You know, I, I was in Jerusalem last month. Uh, as you said, more than, you know, thousands of missiles were shot from by terrorists, yes. organization by Hamas from uh, from the Gaza Strip towards Israel, towards the south of Israel, towards Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. 
And it is correct that the media failed to report about it. I, I don't know, for some reason, there are some perceptions that are inflamed by specific sectors, even here in the United States, yes. definitely in Europe, yes. that Israel is the oppressor and the Palestinians are the, you know, the poor guys. You know, I'm not saying that there is definite good and bad. There's always some nuances to every story. But the basic fact is that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. which wants to live in peace with its neighbors. And we are surrounded by many terrorist organizations from north, south, east, west. This is, I mean, this is a very unique situation. So um, I'm sure that we have enough friends here in the United States, this station included, that tell the right story. And I appreciate it. Well, how can our listeners right now, they're hearing you on the land and the book, how can they be more supportive of Israel? You know what? Many people ask me that question, and I think that everyone could do something from the, you know, the desktop at his or her uh, home office. You know, just reach out to your local congressman or woman. Ask them to be supportive of Israel. Ask them to be supportive of the defense of Israel uh, in Congress and the security of Israel. You know, just a few uh, months ago, we had a vote in, in, in the Congress in Washington. There was a tremendous support in the Iron Dome. That is a system that defends Israel from the, you know, terrorist missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, we had 420 congressmen and women who supported uh, the Iron Dome bill. There were nine who opposed it, but I prefer to look at the, at the bright side, of, uh, at the 420. And that has to do with uh, many, many good men and women all around the United States who reached out to the Congress people and demanded them to show support for the security of Israel. Well, our time has gone by too quickly. I hope you'll stop by again. That's Council General Yanam Cohen. Thanks for your time. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Stick around for questions and answers with Charlie next on The Land and the Book. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. John Geiger hanging out with you. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has his Bible open and his eyes on a stack of questions that have come in via email. Charlie, do they ever make you nervous? No, because uh, as a teacher, the one thing you can always say is that's a great question. I wish I had a great answer to go with it. And when you give yourself that freedom, uh, the rest is just fun. The thing is, you usually do have a great answer. So let's uh, find out what's come in recently, starting with Terry's question. He says, I've been looking at Revelation and have also looked at references in various books regarding end times, but I'm unable to find direct verses that seem to funnel countries into a one-world government. Where do we get the understanding that society will be funneled into this type of structure other than they're speaking of an antichrist and his desire for power and worship? And he references Daniel, 1 Thessalonians, and Revelation. Or he he wonders, is this an assumption since all the focus is on Israel and the ten horns or ten kings, the major nations in that area of the world? What do you think? Well, I think it actually depends on what we mean by one world government. Now, personally, and people will be shocked here, I don't think the Bible pictures a totally unified one world confederation in the end times. But I need to explain what I mean. The Bible does picture a world power that will arise during the end times. And for verses, it's in the final portion of the statue of nations described in Daniel chapter 2 and the last portion of the fourth beast pictured in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Daniel 7 specifically says that fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. And it says it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. 
And then Revelation 13, John has a a vision of that same fourth beast. And he says, the whole world was astonished and followed him. And they worship him saying, who can make war against him? Now, I believe those verses do picture this end time ruler, the Antichrist, extending his control over the whole world. And then finally in Revelation 17, we are told about the 10 kings who for one hour receive authority as kings as, uh, along with the beast and will give their power and authority to the beast. So in that sense, this final power does involve a coalition of nations led by the Antichrist. But the reason I wouldn't call it a one world government is because there's still opposition to the Antichrist in the end times. Uh, in Daniel 11, it describes that final period before Christ comes back to earth. And at the, he says in verses 40 to 45, uh, there's going to be an invasion of the beautiful land, that's Israel, and then a campaign against Egypt and Libya and the Nubians. There's a North African campaign. And then the Antichrist finally comes back to Jerusalem where he comes to his end with no one to help. Now, my point is, I don't see a unified world government with every single person and nation choosing willingly to submit to the Antichrist. However, the Bible does say his rule extends over the whole world mm-hmm. with many nations pledging allegiance. And those that choose not to follow him, are going to be conquered and defeated with the exception of Israel. So I hope that's helpful. I hope it's not too confusing, but there is a one world government in the sense that Satan's ultimate plan is to have the world follow and obey this false Messiah. But like everything else Satan does, the control only comes through force and it's never totally universal. The Antichrist does build up that coalition spanning the globe that does seem unstoppable. uh, That is until Jesus shows up. Gabriel wants to know, do we know when and where Joseph and Mary earthly parents of our Lord Jesus Christ, got married. Do we know details of the betrothal and marriage? According to Matthew 1, Joseph was betrothed to Mary when she was found to be pregnant, and God let him know that this was through the Holy Spirit. In verse 24, we're told there that Joseph then took her home to be his wife. We know Mary was told about her becoming pregnant in Luke 1 while she was living in Nazareth. So as a result, I'm assuming they met and were betrothed while living in Nazareth, and That's also likely where they were married. They then traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem as the time of Jesus' birth approached. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, working our way through questions, which we always do in this fascinating segment, which takes us to another question about judgment. Has any judgment already taken place for which somebody would be in hell right now? Well, it depends on what we mean by hell. Uh, Hades is a place of judgment that's often translated as hell. In Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, after dying, the rich man was in torment in Hades. So if Jesus is describing reality, and I believe he is, uh, there are people in a place of torment right now. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, in verses 13 and 14, it describes the great white throne judgment when Hades will give up the dead who are there to stand before the Lord. Uh, Following that judgment, they're then cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's the final and ultimate place of judgment that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. But all that to say, there are people in torment right now, according to the Bible. Is there a messianic calendar that you would recommend for your spiritual life and development, asks Philip. He says, uh, I'm talking about a system or way of keeping up with the holidays or staying in the word that you would recommend. I discovered, for example, that there are calendars on my computer and phone that talk about certain holidays that maybe we don't celebrate in the United States. That's helpful. But from there, I'm not always sure what to read or where to turn. Yeah, and there are some good Messianic Jewish calendars, and you can find information on them online. I'd suggest that you Google Chosen People Ministries, uh, they have a calendar. Uh, A second opportunity would be an online calendar, and it's actually found at Jews for Jesus website. And then finally, 
Light of Messiah Ministries also has a calendar that you could order. So if you Google any one of those three ministries, you'll find good information on those calendars. Troy asks, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John recounts his vision of 144,000 people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. In his list, John leaves out Dan and Ephraim, but includes Joseph and Manasseh. This list is different than any other biblical list of the tribes. John's unusual listing of tribes leads some Bible scholars to suggest that the 144,000 represent all believers instead of a literal number of Jewish believers. Could you offer your thoughts on this? Yeah, and I start by saying there's nothing in Revelation 7 that provides any hint that the names are intended to refer to anything other than what they're said to be. That is, uh, there are 144,000 Jewish believers during the tribulation period. Now, the change from Ephraim to Joseph, well, that's not a major problem since Ephraim was one of Joseph's two children, with Manasseh being the other. The real difference is the fact that Levi's included in the list while Dan is not. You know, there were really 13 tribes in the sense that Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were each given tribal allotments while the tribe of Levi was not assigned a specific territory, just individual cities. So Joseph in the passage is referring to Ephraim as distinct from Manasseh. Now, we're not told why the tribe of Dan is left out. Uh, suggestions have been given, you know, Dan being the tribe that left its initial tribal allotment, or even that the Antichrist could come from the tribe of Dan. But those kind of suggestions, well, they're really just speculation. The one thing I do know is that Dan still has a future place in God's program for Israel. And I say that because of Ezekiel 48, where God assigns the land to its different tribes. And the first tribe to receive its allotment in that millennial kingdom is Dan. All the other tribes are then given their tribal allotment, including a portion for the priests and Levites. So all the tribes do have a future. We just don't know why Dan isn't included as part of the 144,000 Jews for Jesus who are going to be God's witnesses during the tribulation period. Hmm. Joanne has a question about the Egyptians and Joseph stopping at the threshing floor of Atad which is beyond the Jordan prior to continuing on to Machpelah. This does not seem like it's on the way from what I could tell, she says, from what I looked up on maps, especially because it says beyond the Jordan. So why do you think it was important for the Egyptians to seek out this threshing floor to mourn Jacob? Do you think it may have something to do with the Egyptian practice of veneration of the dead? I've heard threshing floors can be considered supernatural locations of interactions with the gods. Any insights you might have would be appreciated. Yeah, and I have a feeling most listeners are listening. They're going, I don't even understand the question. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually a fascinating one. And, uh, some time ago, I read a book called Places in the Parasha that actually had an entire chapter devoted to this issue. So when I read this, I thought, yes, I know why God stuck that piece of information in my mind. Uh, it's a rather technical book, but it really helps solve geographical problems in the Bible. And, and here's what the writer suggested, which I think he's right on. He said the Egyptian army went with the brothers, but their purpose in the expedition was likely an annual operation to replace the troops manning the Egyptian garrisons posted throughout Canaan. Uh, the expedition stopped at a central location, uh, this threshing floor, before sending the various garrisons onto their posts. Jacob's sons traveled with the garrison to that point and then went from there onto Hebron to bury their father. Uh, the exact spot beyond the Jordan isn't clear, but he suggests uh, that it's probably down near Jericho. 
It was out of the way geographically for the brothers, but it made sense for the Egyptian army, which followed a set route to resupply and rotate the various garrisons. Anyway, if we see the two groups, the soldiers and the brothers, heading out together but with different overall purposes, well, then it makes sense geographically. Uh, The brothers traveled with the army while the army paused at this dividing point to pay homage to Joseph. The army then began dispersing to the various posts, while the brothers traveled to Hebron from there to bury their father before heading back on to Egypt. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. But if anybody's listening saying, oh, that sounds like an interesting book, the book is titled Places in the Parashah, Biblical Geography and Its Meaning, and it was written by a Jewish scholar, Yoel Elitzer. I don't agree with everything he says, but I'll tell you, I find his approach very stimulating. And I thank you, Charlie, for opening up your Bible to these uh, many questions that have come in. We're looking forward to your devotional. It's coming up next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Stick around. It's the cereal built on the phrase, Breakfast of Champions. Do you know what it is? Of course you do. It's Wheaties. And of course, Wheaties, based largely on the product grown in the farmer's fields, known as wheat. Did you know Charlie Dyer's devotional has everything to do with wheat coming up? First, though, this Holy Land experience. Listen. The desert was the biggest thrill for me. And I think it may be because I've spent the last several months reading and studying the life of Abraham. So to go there and to see the Negev and to see the land that he lived in and to see Beersheba, to see the well that's located there. And to me, it made the Bible so much richer. And I'll give you just a small example, but one of the things we learned was about camels and we would see camels in the desert And our tour guide, who was excellent, mentioned that camels would drink about 10 buckets of water. And then she directed us to point it out to Abraham's servant who went to the well and was told, you know, that uh, look for the woman who would not only offer water to you but for your camels. Well, I went back to the scripture that night and read that scripture. Do you know that Abraham's servant had 10 camels? Do you know that each camel would have drunk 10 buckets of water? So Rebecca served 100 gallons of water to the camel. Now, to me, it makes the scripture so much richer. And that's one of 100 examples I could give you. Hey, thanks so much. Well, the nation of Israel was very much an agricultural nation, very much in tune with all kinds of different species of barley, grain, and today it's wheat. Charlie, what you got? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses summarized the bounty of the land into which Israel was about to enter. It was a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And though the land also contained other produce like almonds and capers and sycamore figs and lentils, the seven crops listed in Deuteronomy 8 were the main ones Israel would find. Over the next few weeks, I want us to take a series of field trips through the Bible to see the role each crop played in Israel's history. And we begin today with the first crop listed, wheat. Our journey could take us almost anywhere in Israel, from Dan to Beersheba. Gideon was threshing wheat in the Jezreel Valley when God appeared to him. And the people of Beit Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the Sorek Valley when they saw the Ark of the Covenant returning from the Philistines. When Samuel gathered Israel to Gilgal near Jericho for his farewell speech, it was the time of wheat harvest. Solomon actually exported wheat from Israel to the land of Tyre. In short, Wheat was the most important grain grown in Israel, 
and it could be grown throughout most of the land. But while we could travel many places in Israel to talk about wheat, I want us to walk up to the Temple Mount, because today we're visiting the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, who's also named Araunya. But before we begin our visit, let's watch the process of wheat being harvested. Once the wheat is ripened in late May or early June, the reapers are sent into the field. These workers grab handfuls of stalks and cut them off the base with a sharp sickle. They then twist these handfuls of stalks into sheaves and drop them onto the ground. Once all the stalks in a field have been cut, the workers go back to gather up the sheaves and carry them to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is really nothing more than an area of exposed bedrock or hard-packed soil. And once the stalks are gathered, the grain is separated from the straw by a threshing sledge, a flat sled with sharp rocks or iron teeth embedded in its bottom. As the sled is dragged across the sheaves, the rocks or iron teeth cut into the pile, separating the heads of grain from the straw. The straw is then taken away, leaving the heads of wheat along with husks and bits of straw on the threshing floor. In the afternoon, once a strong breeze blows in from the Mediterranean, the workers grab large wooden forks and toss the pile into the air. The lightweight straw and chaff are blown to the edge of the threshing floor, while the heavier grains of wheat fall back onto the ground. This winnowing process separates the wheat from the chaff, and once the wheat has been separated, it's gathered and stored in large clay jars. But what does the harvesting, threshing, and winnowing of wheat have to do with the Temple Mount or with us? The answer is found in 1 Chronicles 21. The chapter begins with David making a foolish mistake, either from pride in how great he had become or from a lack of trust in God's ability to protect the nation. David decided to take a census of all the fighting men in Israel. His rash act displeased God, who brought judgment on Israel as a result. A plague sent from God decimated the very army David had sought to number. After David confessed his sin, the angel of the Lord had the prophet Gad tell him to go build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. This incident took place in late May or early June because Ornan was threshing wheat when David arrived. David requested the threshing floor, and Ornan willingly obliged. Take it, he said. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. We don't know if Ornan's generosity was prompted by a genuine love for David or by the fact that he was a non-Israelite living in the city that had been captured by David and made into David's capital. In either case, Ornan was willing to suffer financial loss to help David. David's response must have shocked him. No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. David was not about to make one of his subjects pay for his mistake. The compiler of 1 Chronicles reports that David paid 600 shekels of gold for the site. So how much did David pay? It's actually difficult to answer. A shekel weighed just under a half ounce. So 600 shekels of gold would be the equivalent of just under 300 ounces of gold. Today, gold selling for over $1,500 an ounce. So at today's rate, David paid over $450,000 for the property. That's a lot of money. But it's even more astounding if we calculate the value of gold in David's day. We don't know what the going wage was in his day, but a thousand years later, the average worker was paid a silver denarius for a day's wages. 
A shekel weighed slightly more than a denarius, and it took 15 shekels of silver to equal one shekel of gold. Using those figures as a rough approximation, David paid the equivalent of what an average person would earn after working for 30 years. That's a lot of money. Uh, there is an apparent discrepancy in the purchase price. While 1 Chronicles 21 says David paid 600 shekels of gold, 2 Samuel 24 says David paid 50 shekels of silver for the property. That's quite a difference. But a careful reading of both passages shows how they can be harmonized. 2 Samuel 24 says David paid 50 shekels of silver, nearly two months' wages, for the threshing floor and the oxen, which he used as a sacrifice. 1 Chronicles 21 says David paid 600 shekels of gold for the site. The threshing floor was just a small piece of the area. Evidently, David also purchased all the land that surrounded the threshing floor. This likely included all of Ornan's wheat fields, since his threshing floor would have been located near the area where the wheat was grown. So why is David's purchase so important? The answer is found in two additional passages of Scripture. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we're told that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The land purchased by David is the area where Solomon later built the temple, and it's identified as Mount Moriah. Sound familiar? In Genesis 22, that's the spot where God commanded Abraham to go to offer his son Isaac. God's temple was ultimately built on the very spot where the angel of the Lord had appeared twice, once to Abraham and once to David, and where both men had offered sacrifices to God. So what lesson can we take away from our visit to Mount Moriah and our walk through the wheat fields and the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite? Perhaps it's this. True worship demands that we place God above all that we value most. For Abraham, it was his willingness to offer his only son. For David, it was his insistence on personally paying full price for the threshing floor and surrounding land. The real test of our love for God is our willingness to give him what we value most. Worship, at its core, is worth-ship, acknowledging the worth and supreme authority of the God we claim to love. I had a professor in college who said it best. The saying didn't originate with him, but his Scottish brogue made it memorable to me. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. David interrupted the wheat harvest and bought the threshing floor so he could offer sacrifices there to his God. What's God calling on you to sacrifice? Whatever it is, use it as an opportunity to demonstrate your absolute love and total devotion to him. Thanks, Charlie. And before we let you go today, I want to encourage you to check out our Facebook page. You'll find great photos, articles that you won't find anywhere else. That Facebook page is accessed best at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Just click on the Facebook icon there. Our time is gone, but thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.